Hebrews 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar for which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will, ha will have to give an account. Let us do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send, your greeting, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sandy. Boys and girls who are registered for Story Keepers can head out there now. As the kids are heading out, just a friendly reminder, if you can keep your masks on during the service, just as numbers increase and people have different comfortable le comfort levels with uh, the mask, that would, be, that would be great. Let me uh, pray and then we'll think about the passage. Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you for this book of Hebrews that we've been working our way through. And uh, as we come to its conclusion today, we pray uh, that it would be uh, a massive help for us in our Christian lives as we hear what the preacher has to say in conclusion. So, Lord, wherever, whatever kind of week we've had, whatever kind of day we've had today, wherever we are in our journey of faith, may this be a significant time because we confidently know that as we open up your word, you speak to us. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, I remember hearing a talk by the late R.C. Sproul in which he asked himself the question, if I was marooned on a desert island and could only have one book, what book would that be? Not surprisingly, he was a preacher after all, his one book was the Bible, but then he asked, if I could only have one book of the Bible, what would it be? And if I could only have one chapter of one book of the Bible, what would that be? And I've reflected on those questions for myself over the years. I think I've mentioned before that, that my one Bible chapter, if I could have no others, would perhaps surprisingly for some of you be Genesis 15. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up when you get home today. But the question of the book of the Bible that I would want has been a, a harder one for me to answer. In the past, I've, I've tentatively actually said this book, the book of Hebrews. But now I'm ready to go on record to move beyond all tentativeness, having spent the last few months uh, immersed in all things Hebrews to commit. This is the book. I love this book. In many ways, I feel like we've only scratched the surface uh, in, this, in this series on Hebrews. I'm looking personally to delving deeper in the future because I just love how Hebrews lifts Jesus up as the better prophet, the better priest, the better sacrifice, the better way. And of course, better in Hebrews means best. Jesus is the best. But I've also appreciated the application of these great truths, the exhortations and, and the warnings even, and the encouragements. I wonder if you noticed as Sandy read the passage that here at the end of the book, the, the, the preacher refers to what he's written as a brief word of exhortation. Now, we might quibble with the brief part, but as far as we can tell, the, the, the colloquial name for a Christian sermon in the first century was actually a word of exhortation. A preacher didn't stand up and preach a sermon. The word sermon wasn't even used yet. The preacher preached a word of exhortation. And that's how the preacher of Hebrews has understood what he's delivered in this book. So you may not be ready to make the same commitment I am of Hebrews being your one book of the Bible on the desert island, but I hope that all of us have found this book to be a helpful word of exhortation to us over the recent months. So today we come to the final chapter, a chapter that to some actually seems more of an anticlimax than a climax to the sermon. One commentator that I read this week referred to chapter 13 as the announcements and the benediction part of the book as the preacher turns to more routine aspects of congregational life. I'm hoping that we're going to see today that it's much more than just a routine closing of his message, however. Story goes of a missionary who was overseas and he looked out at the window of his apartment one day, sees this beggar shuffling along on the street down below, nothing, nothing to his name, the missionary grabs an envelope, puts $20 in the envelope, and writes across the envelope the words, don't despair, and throws it out the window to the beggar. The beggar bends over, picks it up, and 
shuffles away. Well, the next day, the beggar's back at the missionary's front door with a roll of money that he hands over to the missionary. The missionary says, no, 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 it was a gift, it was a gift. And the beggar says, no, sir, this is your share. Don't Despair came in at 60 to 1. It's a Kentucky Derby weekend, it kind of fits, you know. But I tell you that not just to tell a joke, but partly so that we won't despair because the preacher of Hebrews here moves through chapter 13 at breakneck speed through a lot of topics in this last part. And also partly because I want us to notice that this chapter is actually as valuable and exponentially treasure-filled as any part of Hebrews. I'm not going to have the time to make all the connections, but I would suggest to you that there's actually nothing in chapter 13 that doesn't point us to an earlier part of the book. What I do think holds chapter 13 together is its introduction at the end of chapter 12, which we looked at last week. Look again at, with me at uh, 12, 28 to 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, we've mentioned this before, but it's worth noting again that when the word worship is used in the New Testament, it's never used just to refer specifically to what we do on Sunday mornings here in church. Worship in the Bible involves everything that we do with all of our lives, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so in that sense, our worship does have two contexts. There is gathered worship, which is what we're doing right now as we've come together on a Sunday morning. But then the vast majority of our week is spent in what we might call scattered worship, which is our worship of God as we go out from here into the world. And as the preacher closes his sermon here, he wants to remind his congregation of various aspects of what their scattered worship should look like. Here he says is acceptable worship carried out with reverence and awe. Here is authentic, real, true worship. So we want to ask the question this morning, okay, well, what is the nature of this true worship? Well, we're going to see here that true worship at least involves three things, loving one another, heeding your leaders, and following the shepherd. So let's get stuck in. First of all, true worship involves loving one another. Here's verse one again. This time it's from, I'm going to read from the New International Version. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Now the preacher uses here a word that you might just be familiar with, the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. Here we are in the city of brotherly love. And he says that, he says to his congregation, you've shown this kind of love to one another up to this point. So I want you to keep going, keep doing that. This, of course, is intended to actually be the calling card of Jesus's church. In the upper room, the night before he was crucified, Jesus speaks to his disciples, says this, John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What? That if, if you have love for one another. True worship in the church involves loving one another, every one another worked out that it's been almost two years since I used this quote from Don Carson, so it's high time that I mention it again. Listen to what Carson says. He says, ideally, the church of Jesus Christ is not made up of natural friends, but of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics. Let me mention that one again. Common politics, common nationalities, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. 
Those are the things that bind other groups of people together. Christians come together, not because they form a natural collocation or grouping, but because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and because they owe him a common allegiance. In this light, then, we should understand the church to be a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Now, I've said this before. I think that's a splendid definition of the church, a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake, that you can't call yourself a true worshiper of God if you're not willing to love like this. What the preacher then does with, as one writer puts it, brevity, balance, and pungency is give four very practical exhortations that are our expressions of this Philadelphia. So here's the first in verse two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Hospitality has always been one of the hallmarks of Christian community, right from its earliest days. Indeed, the preacher here says, all the way back in the book of Genesis. Pastor's one-sentence exhortation here recalls Abraham's working lunch, as recorded in Genesis 18, where he welcomes, as you may recall, three strangers, gives them food and drink, and two of them turn out to be angels. Well, travel at the time of the New Testament could be dangerous and also difficult. First century inns were renowned for being expensive, unhygienic, and places of immorality. But even though travel could be dangerous and difficult, early Christians we know did travel a great deal as they networked and sought to spread the gospel to those who hadn't heard it. So hospitality was in demand. But as we bring this exhortation to hospitality right up to the 21st century, we need to define it well because it's not actually what's being described here is not the same as just entertaining you and i entertain because we enjoy it most of the time or it's fun or it tends to usually be people whose company that we appreciate hospitality and looks for people outside your normal circles it also has a different motive hospitality always is other centered fulfilling a need it's actually one of the joys of being the pastor in this church that to see how some of you practice this other-centered, need-filling gospel hospitality on an ongoing basis in your life. I really thank you for doing that. Rosaria Butterfield is someone who knows firsthand about the gospel power of hospitality. If you've never read her story in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, I commend that to you. But she then wrote a subsequent book entitled The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. And in that book, she highlights the, the kingdom goals we have when we do biblical hospitality. When we entertain, we tend to be happy to let the conversation meander wherever it will. But in hospitality, we're intentionally seeking to love our guests, to encourage our guests, and to show Christ to our guests. Butterfield puts it like this. She says, radically ordinary hospitality lives out your transparent, authentic faith before the watching world, knowing that too many people are dying of crushing loneliness both within the church and without, and taking comfort in being both earthly and spiritual good to others. Radically ordinary hospitality doesn't just focus on saving faith. It focuses on bearing the image of God. It seeks to simultaneously build up the people, family of God as it adds and includes those who do not yet know Christ. True worship 
involves loving one another, which includes hospitality. Secondly, it includes care for the mistreated, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now again, we're, we're helped here by noting something of the historical context. In this period, it was actually very common for Christians to be thrown into prison, not because they had committed a crime, but simply for being Christian. We read about this in a letter written to the Emperor Trajan by Pliny the Younger, who was a governor in a Roman province in the early 2nd century. Many Christians at the time had stopped going to the pagan temples and worshipping the Roman gods, which had an adverse knock-on economic effect. And so in an attempt to reverse that, Pliny tells the emperor he's been arresting Christians and throwing them in jail, even torturing and executing some. So prison, caring for people in prison was the need of the hour. But there's a bigger principle here, I think, for us, which is beyond just obviously visiting people in prison, and that is that we should actively be seeking to help those Christians who are suffering innocently, whether because of persecution or injustice of any kind or such reasons. And in the context of Hebrews, the reason we do that is because we're imitating Jesus, who we were told in chapter 4 entered so, entered so uh, fully into the human situation that he was able to, quote, sympathize with our weaknesses and to supply the grace to help in time of need. So we follow Jesus' example as we care for those in need. And then third, true worship involves loving one another, which impacts how we treat sex and money. Verses four to six. The marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, what the preacher says here about these two topics fits what we read everywhere else in the Bible about them. But here he rightfully begins with the positive about marriage because all Christian sexual ethics in the Bible, believe it or not, begins with the positive because it was God's idea. Sex was God's idea. He created it. But then he points out that while true worship involves love, loving one another, the community can also be destroyed by love as much as by hate. That is, namely, loving the wrong person leading to sexual immorality and adultery, and loving the wrong things, in this case, money. The term sexual immorality here translates the Greek word pornea, from which we get English words such as pornography. The overwhelming consensus of New Testament scholars is that this Greek word covers every kind of sexual encounter outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage and is therefore subject to God's judgment for those who do not repent. What the preacher says here seems very countercultural to us today, but it was just as countercultural back then. Consider this description of Christians again in the second century, written by those who were seeking to refute Christianity, but finding it very difficult to do so. Here's how this letter described Christians. They share their table with all but not their bed withal. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of things. So you see, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. 
A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And then Christians come along and they give practically nobody their body other than their spouse. And they gave practically everybody their money. We have much to learn from these early believers. But what I think is of particular note here, however, is how the preacher grounds these exhortations about sex and money in what he's already discussed in this, in this sermon about Jesus. So he says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Defilement's a, a purification concept. And so this instruction actually connects to the earlier discussion about Jesus, the great high priest who we were told purifies our hearts and bodies, chapter 10, verse 22. The preacher is, is saying that sexual immorality and adultery are not merely attacks on marriage and morality. They're denials of the sanctifying work of Jesus in our lives. And then when it comes to freeing ourselves from the love of money and being content with what what we have, the preacher quotes two Old Testament uh, references. First of all, Deuteronomy 31, 6, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. Those are great verses in and of themselves. But here the preacher's helpful insight with these quotes is that the love of money, he says, is not so much a product of greed as it is fear of abandonment. So the preacher confronts the love of money by saying, you just need to be assured that God does actually love you and will never leave you or forsake you. And to that he adds the assurance that the Lord Jesus is our helper who, as it were, grasps one, our one hand to free us from fear by his, just his presence. And as he does so, it frees us to open up our other tightly clenched other hand so that we let the money go. True worship involves loving one another, which impacts how we treat sex and money, as well as our care for the mistreated, as well as hospitality. What we see here, true worship doesn't just involve loving one another. According to the preacher, it also means heeding your leaders. This section runs all the way from verse 7 to 19, and it tells us that there are leaders to remember, there are teachers to ignore, and there are leaders to obey. Begin by looking at verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, verse 17, the preacher is going to exhort his audience to uh, obey their leaders. And the distinction would seem to indicate that the leaders he's referring to here in verse 7 are to be distinguished from those leaders in verse 17, because for here the congregation seems to be called to, to remember their leaders in a sense of remembering those who have led them in the past, but who actually now have died. That while they're no longer around... Still, their teachings are to be remembered, their way of life to be considered, and their faith is to be imitated. I suspect that many of us have pastors or youth group leaders or mentors who have taught us and discipled us in the past, who are gone now to be with Jesus, but whose teaching and modeling of the faith still instructs us and inspires us. It might be a good exercise even just this week to sit down and say, who were those people? And to give thanks to God for them. Those leaders may not have endured in the sense of still being around, but their faith, we read here, points us to the enduring Christ of verse 8. Jesus, who is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. 
Again, that's a verse that in and of itself is, is a great encouragement. It's probably one of the most famous verses from the book of Hebrews. But, but again, he's not writing these, this, this uh, verse in a vacuum. He's writing it in the context of the whole book. So ask yourself, well, what has Jesus done for us yesterday that is in the past? In the context of Hebrews, he's given us his word and he's given us his work. Christ's word is how this whole sermon began. Hebrews 1 verse 1, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And then there's his work. Jesus' sacrificial work has been mentioned over and over again through this sermon. And indeed, the preacher is going to bring it up again here in chapter 13. Look at verses 10 to 12. We have an altar. He's talking there about the cross. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And that might seem a bit involved, but basically he's reminding us Jesus was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament sacrifices not only in the sense on the altar of the cross, but also, he says, in relation to even what happened to the carcasses of those sacrificed animals. You go back to Leviticus, other books, you discover that when the Old Testament sacrifices were made, the body of the animal would be burned outside the camp as a symbol that they had been rejected by God in place of the people who had now been made acceptable, who had performed the sacrifices or sacrifices were performed on behalf of them. So the preacher says, consider the significance that Jesus also suffered outside the camp, outside the city gate. That even the location of the crucifixion preaches the gospel to us. That Jesus took on God's displeasure on our behalf and was cast outside the city, taking the place of those who should have been rejected, who should have been outside, namely us. That's what Jesus did for us in the past. And what, what does Jesus do for us today? I mentioned chapter 4, 15 to 16 already, but listen to it again. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have in the present, right now, today, every day, a great, faithful, heavenly friend and priest. And what will Jesus do for his people forever in the future? Chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. It's the inheritance that the preacher refers to in chapter 13, verse 14, as the city that is to come. That is for his people. Jesus provides this marvelous, glorious, beyond your wildest imagination, eternity. In his commitment and his promises, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So those who proclaimed this Christ and lived out their faith in Christ in the past are to be remembered, they're to be imitated. But then in verse verse 9, the preacher says, there are teachers to ignore. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. While there are leaders to be remembered, he says there are definitely teachers who may seek positions of leadership who are to be avoided. 
He says one red flag of those false teachers is, is that their teachings are strange or novel. They aren't what the church has historically taught or what the Bible clearly teaches. The preacher here addresses one particular false teaching concerning food that apparently was doing the rounds at that time, warns his listeners against such teaching because it would take them back to the old covenant, which he's already explained in the sermon is now obsolete. So there are teachers to remember, there are teachers to ignore, and then in verse 17, the preacher addresses his listeners about how they should heed their present leaders. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, here's one of those places in the Bible where it's almost as important to say what it, this doesn't mean as what it does mean. Because what the preacher instructs, when the preacher instructs the congregation here to obey and submit to their leaders, he is not talking about capitulation to authoritarian power brokers and those who tragically abuse their positions of authority in the church. And I don't have to tell you if you watch the news that such abuses continue publicly up to this day, and I'm sure privately as well, and they grieve God beyond anything we can imagine. But you see, when he says here, obey your leaders, the sense of that word actually is be persuaded. That is, be persuaded as your leaders teach God's word. And when he says submit to them, it's a word that has a sense of yield or surrender, again, to the word as it's taught. The fact that obedience and submission can be distorted and abused does not mean that they are not necessary in their true biblical practice. The preacher here sees obedience and submission to godly leaders as an expression of obedience and submission to God's word that they teach. But notice too, as he continues, the preacher's call for confidence in leaders and submission to their authority is based on the principle that godly leaders have their congregation's best interests at heart. Preacher here doesn't use the word shepherd, but the phrase for they are keeping watch over your souls is surely shepherd language. The leaders in the church are not distinguished by either their status or their rank, but by their conscientiousness for the flock, that they stay up at night awake thinking about the care of their flock and the fact that they will be held to account in a way that others are not. But notice then who the preacher says is responsible for making the operations of a church a joy and not a burden. It's not actually the leaders. It's you. Your job, according to verse 17, is to make Jeremy and me happy pastors. <laughs> it's right there. Now the question is, how do you do that? There are many ways, but I want to tell you, here's one way not to do it. Watch this video clip. Some of you may have seen it recently. <laughs> you want to make us happy? Don't jump back in the ditch. The way to make this church a place of joy and not groaning is by heeding the preacher to the Hebrews' exhortations, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, becoming true worshipers, loving one another, loving one another, and heeding your leaders as they teach God's word. 
But lastly, and really just by way of observation, true worship involves following the shepherd. Look at this glorious benediction in verses 20 to 21. It's the benediction we've used every Sunday as we've been going through the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, the preacher hasn't referred to Jesus as a shepherd prior to the very end here in the benediction, but given all that he has said about Jesus so far, it's more than appropriate. Because we've seen how Jesus has sacrificed himself for his sheep, how he's died for our sin, but that the Lord then has brought him up from the dead back to life again, and that that's the journey now that the shepherd leads the sheep on to, leads us from death to life. And in that journey, we realize we are to go where the shepherd takes us, where he goes. The example of Jesus in verse 12, who suffered outside the camp, is to compel us to do likewise. We're to go to him outside the camp and be willing to bear the disgrace he bore, following our great shepherd's great commission to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, no matter what the cost. And how do we do that? Well, the preacher says in verses 15 and 16, we do that in word and action. We offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. He, again, he's not just talking about what comes out of our lips when we gather in, in corporate worship here on a Sunday. He's talking about our witness to Christ in every context of life, in your home, in your workplace, with your friends, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we complement what we say with our words, with our actions. So he says we do not neglect to do good. It is word and it is action. Great preacher of the 20th century, John Stott, would have been 100 years old this week if he were still alive. He's definitely one of those leaders in God's church we do well to remember, as we were instructed in verse 7. But in the Anglican tradition of which Stott was a part, the benediction is often referred to as the dismissal. And Stott described the meaning of the dismissal at the end of a church service this way. It's basically saying, well, it's been nice to have you come visit for a while. Now get out. Go and be yourselves with your faithful God who will help you this week in word and in action. So we go from gathered worship to scattered worship. That's the rhythm every week. Gathered worship, scattered worship. I think the preacher to the Hebrews would have approved of Stott's description and said, yes, exactly. That is true worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our great shepherd, we praise you and thank you for everything that you have done for us. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that you never leave us or abandon us. We thank you that you are our helper, so we do not need to be afraid. And so may we take all that we have learned through this sermon, this sermon of the preacher to the Hebrews, and that you would help us to recall it and apply it in our lives so that we would be true worshipers of you, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.